Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. Chris Kimball returns for the second part of our multi-part discussion. We're looking at how to do research on the Seminole Wars. Last week, we discussed how to go to libraries to do research or how to use the internet for research. Today, Chris is going to go into the nitty-gritty of what you actually find. Next week, we'll get into the people angle, some of the vignettes that he discovered by doing this research on the Seminole War. Chris Kimball is a veritable George Smith. George Smith was an Englishman who was a banknote engraver, but he had an interest in cuneiform, and he would spend his lunchtime and sometimes evenings at the British Museum where the cuneiform was. Although one could read cuneiform, nobody had gone through the many thousands of tablets to see what was actually there until George Smith. In the 1860s and 1870s, it was George Smith who translated cuneiform to find the story of the biblical flood within the Epic of Gilgamesh. This was quite the astounding achievement that made worldwide news. Chris Kimball has to do his own translation, and that's usually from the cursive handwriting from the actual report that's put down. But he has found a number of gems over the years, and uh, he's here to talk to us about how he used his lunchtime to find these gems. Our listeners know that Chris Kimball is the author of several books about the Seminole War. These include books about the battles, about individuals in the Seminole Wars, and newspaper coverage. Today, Chris Kimball returns to discuss how he's done the research, what sources on the internet and through libraries are available for somebody doing research on, say, the Seminole Wars. Chris is a wealth of information and techniques to get that information. So without further ado, we welcome Chris Kimball back to the Seminole Wars. Well, I'm glad to be here once again. Chris, some people relax during their lunchtime and take it easy, but not you. Tell our listeners what you used to do during lunchtime. Well, in the 1990s, I worked in downtown Orlando, and I would spend my lunch hour and go into the library. And the Orlando Library has an amazing collection of Florida history uh, because it's a very old library, too, in the state. And so I was looking up anything I could find on the Seminole War. And then for the past two, eight years, I've been in Tallahassee, and I'm in the R.A. Gray Building, which is the state library, and I'm in the briar patch for that. You know, I'm just in hog heaven. But I've been doing the living history and reenactment since 1985, uh, so 35 years. I've been researching as much as I can as most people who are into the living history, you want to start to build your character and your persona, find out what life is like during the times that you portray. So I really dig into that. When I got to Tallahassee, of course, I already knew about the sources that they had available because it's also similar to what's in the university library here in Florida. How so? How is it similar? For example, in the state library, they have the full collection of the adjutant uh, papers from the National Archive. It's all on microfilm. And they have like the quartermaster records and the naval captain's letters and just something that I could spend forever going through. 
And so when I research something, I just start going through the microfilm roll, looking for the letter that I might be looking for. And I find all this interesting stuff about life back during the Seminole War. And some of it's just hilarious. You know, sometimes you might even find a lost relative in there, which I, I found a few interesting characters that might be a lost relative. Uh, whether they're, you know, being discharged from the Army or something. And anyway, uh, since I was in the Army and in the Adjutant General's Corps, Adjutant General Corps, that I know my way around the records and can go through it very quickly. Another thing is that my great-grandmother did the family genealogy, and she was born about 1867, and her handwriting's like uh, early 19th century handwriting. Uh, so going through her records taught me how to understand the cursive or the handwriting of a lot of the people I'm researching, so that helped. Now, once I'm on the microfilm going through the letters, the Adjutant General Corps, basically the correspondence at the time. I mean, today we have Wi-Fi and cell phones and everything, Back then, the only way to send a message is by letter. So these letters are preserved. Uh, the Army would receive them and just file them on, on the date that they received them. And usually by the last name of the person who had penned the letter, but that's not always true, too. Especially you know, General Zachary Taylor, he, he liked to micromanage letters. So he would take all his uh, junior officers' letters and they'd be under T for Taylor, even though it might be somebody else. So sometimes you have to move up in the chain of command. So anyway, going through these letters, I just happened to find so many different gems of uh, lost information that really put the human face on the war. Does the cursive writing lend itself to patterns so that you can, once you decipher one portion, you're able to figure it out for the rest of what's in the letter? Sometimes it is. Uh, like you get to, after reading so many letters, I get to recognize handwriting of different adjutants or scribes in the Army. And yes, they usually write the letters in triplicate because one copy would go to Washington, D.C., to the War Department or the Adjutant General's office or one copy would go to like the Florida headquarters and the other would go wherever else is going. So they'd make a lot of handwritten copies. And of course, the adjutant would have to be literate in reading or writing, but that's not always the case. <laughs> there there was a uh, young Lieutenant Green at Micanopy and his adjutant was killed on one of the battles. And so he sent in his monthly report. So the Army Adjutant General chastises him for doing the report wrong and so Lieutenant Green's writing back says, sorry, my accident was killed by Indians. <laughs> I didn't know how to do the report. But what's interesting is every lawyer will tell you that the court cases are won or lost on the paperwork or the paper trail that's going along. That, that's certainly what's happening in the Army at this time is that you can really tell what's happening. And sometimes they're very candid on what they have on the for example, they want to discharge a soldier uh, who's drunk all the time. and Or if there's a court-martial, there's a assistant surgeon named Ellis Hughes and who was into some very slanderous or, or terrible behavior. Uh, 
basically drunk for three and a half months down around uh, Fort Lauderdale. And it was so bad that they had court martial on kicking him out of the army. Uh, he did things like moon the officers from on shore at the, the dock when they're leaving on the steamboat. And so they were uh, going to have a court martial and it goes over 15 counts in detail on what was going on, some stuff that I can't even tell on the program here. So it does get quite interesting sometimes. Chris, how has this benefited you as a living historian? When we find an example to use, it adds something to our persona or our story that when we're talking to people, we can tell these funny stories of things that happened on the Florida frontier that are just more interesting, add the human face to the war and find out it's just not fighting, you know, soldiers versus Indians, that there's real people involved and some good and some bad. Tell us about this ledger book. What does it consist? The War Department or the Secretary of War, he's sending out letters by the dozen each day. And all his letters are in one ledger book that a scribe or an adjutant or uh, whoever is writing down all these letters, basically the content of the letters and who they're going to and the date and the issue that they're talking about. So some, sometimes you'll have them all in a ledger. Now, the orderly book is pretty much the same thing that you have for each of the forts. So like we've seen of the Fort Brook ledger, sometimes it's on legal page, which is <laughs> kind of hard to copy, but our cell phones are actually getting very good on copying material now. You just go through this book at the daily letters on what's happening. It's especially interesting at Fort Brook around Major Date's time of all the things happening there and the uncertainty and what's going on. They can't find the ship that was supposed to arrive or they're afraid of the Indians attacking the fort and things like that. It gets very interesting on what it has to say. What do these adjutant letters consist of? Adjutant letters are all on the microfilm, are all individual letters of, from the, the people and, you know, different style handwritings. And if they got wet, then the ink is faded and they're really hard to read. Or you have Colonel Harney, who has absolute chicken scratch for handwriting and almost can't read a word they wrote. <laughs> so, so then I go into the congressional reports where they Re reprint the letter, but this time it goes through actual printing house to print it in the congressional books, <laughs> and then it's printed up. Or uh, and also the newspapers reproduce some of the letters too. So sometimes there's get ways of getting around bad handwriting if you can find it in the newspaper or the congressional report. The letters coming into the War Department, they have the original letters of those. The letters going out on the microfilm, letters sent by the War Department or Secretary of War, that's all the ledger-type letters. So the microfilm is basically pages of the book. And what's interesting about those is that they usually also have uh, somewhat of, of an index in front, too. So if you're looking up Fort King or Winfield Scott, that you can uh, look up that name and see which pages on the letters that might appear. So that kind of helps for locating something or a little less random than the letters coming in. The originals are probably in the National Archives and the National Archives have 
repositories around the country like St. Louis or or Denver. So they might be in Alexandria, Virginia, the originals, or they might, you know, be somewhere else in Boston or who knows where. Um, but the um, microfilm that we have in the library, I guess the several versions of the microfilm rolls are sent around to various libraries around the country. I guess if you go in the National Archives, the, the microfilm rolls will also be available there, too. I've noticed some stuff that I've seen kind of deteriorate over 20 years that I've looked at this stuff, too. So, you know, it's kind of important for them to microfilm and copy what they can and preserve it on some type of media, uh, because in our 100 years, it might turn to dust. I'm happy to see this preserved and that is made available to scholars. But when it's on microfilm, oh man, does it give me a headache going through it. What's your experience? It does that to me too, but the um, state library now has PC computers and scanners, so it reads the image. So you can fiddle around, zoom in, zoom out, work on the resolution, and it's a lot easier on the eyes. And uh, right, it messes with your vertigo, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if it's not available online, you've got to actually deal with the microfilm. What is that like? Well, I have to go to the library and uh, put the microfilm in the machine, and then with the PC, I can zoom forwards and backwards and zoom in and zoom out. And my favorite part is that I get, bring my a thumb drive with me and press a button and make an instant copy so I can copy hundreds of letters with no paper copies that are 10 cents a page. <laughs> the, the digital copies are free. How long have they been doing this adapted way of putting out the microfilm for use? It's, I think, been around for at least 10 years. Um, when I started working there, they had the PCs there already. Uh, but it, just in case for nostalgia, if you want to use the old microfilm machine, is that the libraries have those too. And I'm told that the, uh, uh, I don't know if even the county library has the old machines anymore, uh, but uh, I, I have a friend that you've had here on the program, and he's been in the library, and he likes to use the old machines. <laughs> so, you know, it, I guess it just depends on what you're used to working. Some people, yes, like the old school, but it does have its drawbacks out of focus usually or something yeah the new pcs they make good quality uh, copies and it saves it as a pdf or a jpeg what whichever you want instead of the big glass that you're looking on it's it's a screen like a flat screen tell us how this fits into the overall records keeping management that the state maintains records keeping management in the state of florida runs the same way i've taken the course on records keeping is that you're supposed to keep the original and just archive it, you know, put it in a box in a controlled atmosphere warehouse just in case you ever need it. Because once you make a copy of something, you lose some of the resolution. Usually, if, if at all costs or if all possible, try to save the original. And then you have a uh, copy to uh, on the microfilm or whatever to handle and pick up. And, of course, you have a master reel stashed away in case you ever need to make copies from that. When I podcasted with Ben DiBiase from the Florida Historical Society, he mentioned how they take care of the scanning, 
And sometimes that serves as the means that the society has to actually have documents scanned. But they may actually scan it and then a few years later with better technology, go along and rescan it for a customer. But they've always kept the originals back, as you say. Usually the philosophy on record keeping is that you want to keep the original even if you want to put a storage uh, container or you know something where it won't deteriorate, hopefully, uh, in case you ever have to go back to it. But once you make a like a microfilm copy uh, or something you can handle, you don't have to keep touching the original document. Another good reason to keep the original is because there can be scanning errors. So if you scan it, it becomes microfilm. If you leave something out, if they take the microfilm and then copy it, and it's made available to libraries throughout, say, the United States, if they're missing something, they're all missing the same thing. Well, the problem with that is that the copies that they had on microfilm, sometimes they were missing pages. So I had tracked down the original volume, and a few of them I was able to do that uh, because there are a few <laughs> around in some of the libraries. Uh, but yes, that is a problem if they don't copy all the pages. You ran into this head first with the Army and Navy Chronicle, which ceased publication for about seven, eight months or so. And no one could figure out, did it cease publication or were these just lost? Right. The supplement issue was uh, printed, uh, I think, in 1841. Uh, and I think the only copy is maybe one copy at West Point, as far as we know. I don't know of any other copies of the supplemental issue. And the thing is, this Army-Navy Chronicle special supplement issue that was not included with the microfilm gave the answers to why publication would cease. But this did not get picked up in original microfilm. And so anyone who goes online and has this doesn't get access to the supplement and doesn't see the full picture of what's going on with that publication for why it stopped. However, West Point had a hard copy. They made microfilm of it, but they kept the hard copies. And from this, we were able to determine there had been a supplement. It just hadn't been included in the microfilm. Now it can be included. And it was sent to all subscribers. And I think it's either eight or 16 pages. All that's in there is just the editor explaining the reason for the uh, I guess the six months hiatus in publication uh, where a lot of the people he was sending the issues to were not paying their subscription fees. And he basically went broke <laughs> trying to publish it uh, because junior officers don't get paid a lot. <laughs> and they said a promissory note that they go out on ship out to sea for three years and, and never send payment. So there was some sleuthing that had to go on. We didn't know there was something missing in the microfilm, except that it was missing the pages of publication for seven or eight months of issues. But we didn't know anything that there was a supplement that we were missing that explained why this was happening. And it was only through sleuthing that we're able to determine this. One, West Point, seeing if there was anything that they might have as a hard copy, but also looking at other publications, which then sprouted up when this one ceased. And when this one started again, they actually wrote a congratulations that it was back. And then the Army-Navy Chronicle uh, returned that good wish. And by looking at the issues now with these little editor's notes, we can figure out what publications were available at what time.
we found some alternate publications like the New York Military Magazine was trying to fill the gap of that. But the guy publishing that, he his first love was drill and ceremony and, and parades. So he would go out and do that so much so that the the other people who worked at the magazine office there, they could never find him to edit his magazine. So he was actually fired and they got somebody else to be editor. Uh, but that includes about six months information on the Seminole War and some of the things he put in there, we hadn't found anywhere else. Uh, he was also for a short time a Dragoon officer in Florida, and I think he might have been at the Battle of Waxahachie. His name was, uh, I think, uh, William Tompkins, and he was, uh, I guess, one of the people who found the Old Guard parade unit for in New York City. You find uh, bits of information there, like in the uh, New York Military Magazine, He's talking a little bit about campaigning with the Dragoons in Florida down uh, around Fort Pierce and mentions the Congrave rockets and things like that that they're doing on the campaign. It's not much information, but certainly gives uh, another interesting eyewitness account. What perceptions into soldier life have you gained from reading such accounts? I guess it gives me an idea of what it's like to camp out that the soldiers campaigning, uh, camping out in a lot of the same areas that, that the soldiers had to do. Uh, sometimes you have something that's uh, emergency and you have to administer first aid and uh, a lot of emergency situations kind of teach you to handle that. And that was especially important for the Army in, in Florida and also the Seminoles. If you're out somewhere and somebody gets injured or hurt or wounded, then you have to administer first aid and help them get out of there if they are not able to walk out on their own. We think this is a fairly straightforward process, but sometimes you don't find what you're looking for. You find things you're not looking for and you end up using them, but the thing you're looking for may take some time to gather. And sometimes it takes me years to find something. Um, for example, Years ago, I saw a reference about the Battle of Black Point that was saying it was uh, Osceola involved, and, uh, and it, I only saw that in one spot. So for years, I'm looking for any other reference that might identify Osceola as being the leader of the Seminoles that attacked the wagon train on Alachua Prairie. And then, then finally, recently, we the Seminole War Foundation publishes the account of W.W. Smith, and he mentions in there that Osceola was credited for the battle, and that was the one source I was looking for. But the reason why I didn't find it is that that was the eyewitness account that was first published in 1836, and then it's hard to find. There's like two copies in libraries in the state of Florida, and it was not reprinted until the Seminole Wars Foundation published it, I guess, about a year ago. And so now that publication's available again, which is good because I don't like handling the original copy because sometimes all that dust makes me sneeze. I'd rather hold a modern facsimile sometimes. One of the pitfalls of looking at documents, a historian friend of mine said that all documents are self-serving. They're written for some self-serving purpose, even diaries official documents, often to make the writer look good. 
What have you found in your research? Well, you have to understand who's writing and what they saw and how they saw and why they're saying what they're saying. If it's first-person account or second-person account, uh, I think one of the reasons why W.W. Smith, why he wasn't reprinted is because most of his book that he wrote is not a first-person account. He got sick and was at Fort Brooke and would collect the stories from other soldiers and put them together and publish the book. So it's not his eyewitness account necessarily. He's getting it secondhand information. So sometimes it might not be the most accurate. If you take that same battle and look at all the different accounts, uh, there's maybe half a dozen different accounts of the battle that I've seen in like the Army, Navy Chronicle and newspapers and journals. And they might as well be six different battles from the description. It varies so much different that you might be thinking you're looking at a different battle just from the perspective of whoever they're talking to. Had all the reports been compiled from Wahoo Swamp, we might have a different picture of what happened back then. Wahoo Swamp, right. Well, the Battle of Wahoo Swamp's an interesting one because what Sprague prints is the official report by uh, Lieutenant Colonel Benjamin Pierce. And Pierce kind of came in at the tail end when they're not in the very beginning of the battle. So that part, we miss a lot of information in his report that wasn't necessarily in there. Uh, David Moniak, he was a Creek Indian, the first Native American to graduate from West Point, and he was killed at that battle. But by the time Sprague gets there, Moniak floating in the water dead at that point. I found another account by, it was a Major Gardner, and no relation to uh, Captain Gardner from Dade's battles, uh, spelled a little different. And he was in the, pretty much in the very front. He was getting there just as Moniak was killed uh, crossing the stream. So he was there a lot earlier in the battle and had a more significant role. But when Pierce filed the report, he left Captain Gardner out, which Gardner was trying for about the next year to submit his version of the report and get the credit. Uh, because if he wasn't credited with being at the battle, he might not get promoted like some of the other people who stood further back in line. Interesting enough is that Major Gardner's report is not in the adjutant papers. It's in Governor Call's papers for some reason. So he sent his report to Governor Richard Keith Call because uh, that was part of Call's campaign. It apparently never went anywhere from there because I've not seen that report or those letters reproduced. And also with the Call's paper, you have two short eyewitnesses from a couple of the Creek warriors who were with the Creek Regiment fighting on the American side at the Battle of Wahoo Swamp. There you have a few eyewitness accounts that are very closer to the action than what Colonel Pierce put in his official report that was printed in the newspaper and everywhere else. Even today, military people keep going to extraordinary measures to let folks know they were in a combat zone. Everybody wanted to get credit for being in the battle or being there because promotion was few and far between. You might be uh, in the Army for 30 years and only be a captain. In fact, that's one of the complaints in one of the letters in the Army-Navy Chronicle. If you can prove that you were in a lot of these battles, then it might look better or more favorable for you to get promoted and get a pay increase with that. 
Brief programming note, in the coming weeks we'll have Sean Norman back from Gary, who will talk about the Battle of Wong Swamp, as well as Gary's efforts to identify the actual lands where the battle was fought. So Major Gardner's report did not make it into the Adjutant General's letters. It only got as far as the Territorial Governor. What gets included in these Adjutant General letters? What do they consist of? The Adjutant letters are filed by the year that they were received and by the the first letter of the last name of the person who sent the letter. So it might be 1836W. And if you're looking for a letter written by somebody with the last name beginning with W, you'd look in there and it's as they were received at the War Department. So it's a very kind of random filing system, especially if it was uh, the letter was taken out and attached to another report six months later. Maybe the letter you're looking for is further down in the file or on the microfilm roll six months later attached to something else. Or or sometimes where it's attached it, or where it was in the file, there's like a blank page. It says uh, move to instead of W33, it's under T120. Uh, so you'd have to go that folder or microfilm and look under that one. So it's it's a scavenger hunt sometimes. Though, so, as usual, when you're looking through this, you may find curiosities or things that you're curious about that are not related to the Seminole Wars, but they're thrown out there with the Seminole War letters um, because they're put in the order that they were received and not by theme. Yes, very much so, because in the Seminole War letters, you also run into things uh, that's happening up in Wisconsin or out in Kansas or down in Texas. Uh, so it's what's ever going on in history at the time. It's not done by geographical location. So I got to the point now where uh, I'm looking up where it says Fort Crawford. I know that's not Seminole War. That's up around Minnesota, Wisconsin, around there. If it says Hancock Barracks, that's, uh, I guess, New York or something like that. So as I'm going through and see the location at the top the letter is written from, <laughs> I could recognize it real quick there. And that helps me locate something real fast while I'm going through the microfilm and trying to find the, <laughs> the Seminole War letter that I'm looking for. So, Chris, once you get the bug for research, it could be addicting, can't it? Oh, it's, it's very addictive uh, because... Sometimes it might even involve the same people, and you might be interested in what's going on there after all. Uh, for example, uh, uh, Colonel William Jenkins Worth, before he came down in Florida, he was up in Michigan and, and other situations like that. Or they're writing from Fort Gibson, Oklahoma, which is what well, was Arkansas Territory then, which loosely connects to the Seminole War because the Seminoles were taken out of Florida, but they're talking about something interesting in Oklahoma, like the Osage and the Creeks not getting along or problem with the Cheyenne or Comanche. Uh, so it's very, it's very interesting to see what's happening there at the same time. It, it gives you a more broader picture of what's going on in the country. And at the same time, the U.S. Army was very small. And so you'd run into a lot of the same names and same people. And it gives you kind of a progression of things that are going on. And as well as reading through the Army-Navy Chronicle of all the political influences affecting everything, 
Uh, as the Seminole War winds down, and you see less letters and information about that and more about what's going on in Texas and the border with what was Mexico at the time. What kind of research did you do to set the stage or the context for Major Dade when he went out to march? You had to look at the environment and the climate and the political climate in Florida at that time. What I did before the Dade march, I wanted to see what Major Dade was doing uh, before he came to his final fate. So I went back about oh, about three years uh, to look through all the letters written by Major Dade. And he was in uh, New Orleans around Fort Jackson or Fort St. Philip. And he went on a recruiting trip up to Albany. He had a second child born. And that child died in Frederick, Virginia. And they came back down to Florida, Key West. And things were kind of rough in Key West because one of the officers resigned and his surgeon was behind bars for some, some, something that he had done in the city. And talking about all the action there, one of the soldiers was complaining the food was bad. So they had to do a health inspection of the food to see if he was just complaining about the food or if it really was all spoiled. And kind of things like that and working up the orders that major day had to assume and go to florida didn't happen right away because he had all these other things happening at the same time and had to purchase supplies and things going on down in key west and looking through the adjutant letters i found a few interesting things for example i found that some of major Dade's men didn't make it on the march. I went into the adjutant letters. A lot of times that people didn't hear from their loved ones, their their husband uh, had not written home or their son. And so people write the Secretary of War and those letters end up in the adjutant report. They're asking, you know, what happened to my son or what happened to my husband? I haven't heard from him in six months. So I found one letter uh, this uh, Major Dade's command, a William Stevens, who enlisted by Baltimore. Uh, he was enlisted there by Major Dade uh, a year before Dade's battle in the 4th U.S. Infantry. And when Major Dade left Key West, uh, William Stevens was sick at Key West, so he missed the boat, and therefore he wasn't on the boat. <laughs> there and see yeah, let me see does it say yeah it says it reported him sick in key west and not casualty of the war so because he had a sick day he survived there and then there's a another soldier and about at the same time uh william schofield and this is from i guess his father abijah schofield he's saying please make an inquiry whether he's Dead or alive, I received information of the massacre of the United States Company of Indians and their officer being Captain Gardner. That's George Washington Gardner. And he had been recruited by Gardner. And so going up uh, Secretary War, he, he searches out for it and finds that he's present for duty in Captain Drain's company 
and was at the Battle of Withlacoochee. <laughs> and so he's at uh, Fort Drain at that point. So he's still alive, although elsewhere in Florida, uh, not far from where Major Dade was killed. And then there's another soldier that was, I guess it said, broke his tibia and was at Fort Brook. Um, there's another soldier who, going back and when I mentioned that Major Dade uh, was at Key West and reading the letters from there, there was one soldier who was uh, in the stockade and they were going court-martial. Instead, they just took him with the comp- company to Fort Brook. So he went to Fort Brook, but his name's not listed in the soldiers killed uh, with Dade's command. So he apparently went from the stockade at Key West to the stockade at Fort Brook and, and, and stayed there. Uh, they never got around to court martial apparently. Um, and I don't know what, much of what happened from there. The problem with the Army adjutant records is they're not incomplete. They just have a window or snapshot of what's going on at that moment when that letter is written. Uh, since it's not always in order, sometimes they are attached as one set of records sometimes you have to go in the uh the other series of microfilm like the quartermaster records or the letters sent from the secretary of war to get a further picture of that uh for example i found out that i wrote about uh, lieutenant walter sherwood who was killed near micanopy exactly five years to the day after major day on December 28, 1840, and he had just gotten to Florida, and I know going through the quartermaster record, his father and brother were wanting his remains to be taken up to uh, New York, where he was from, and buried in New York, and so they bought a lead casket to ship his body up to New York, and I'm seeing a series of letters, of course, in the quartermaster department, which uh, General Jessup is uh, head of the quartermaster department at that point, and the information about shipping him up there. And I don't see that in the adjutant reports, uh, because at the end of war, when they mention about uh, digging up the remains of the officers killed in the war and moving them to St. Augustine, Walter Sherwood's name appears on the list of one of the officers that they, uh, the remains that they dug up and <laughs> sent to St. Augustine. So apparently they dug up two bodies and credited it to him, but apparently the quartermaster department was not talking to the adjutant corps. <laughs> and so you have two two separate records of what really happened. But if you go to West Point Cemetery, it's, there's the uh, gravesite of Walter Sherwood in the cemetery. The tombstone says sacred, the remains. So his remains are there in West Point. And of course, the other series of letters say that he is one of the officers buried in St. Augustine in the mass grave under the pyramids. And then there's a strange case of John Casey that you and I, and then there's the strange case of John Casey. You and I were involved in this, trying to find out for Dr. P.J. Springer, where is John Casey buried? What's the story behind that? Right, and uh, of course, John Casey, he put in his will that where he wanted to be buried, 
uh, I think first he said Egmont Key, and then somebody else said that his uh, he was buried at Fort Brook, and so somewhere along the line, his family had his body exhumed or his remains exhumed and reinterred up in Brooklyn in the family cemetery up there. There was a uh, one of the highest-ranking officers in the Seminole War, uh, John Green. He was, with, I believe, with the 6th Infantry. Uh, he died at the Grove, which is Richard Keith Call's house at the Grove. And there's the family cemetery back there. And that he should have been buried back there. But then, like Lieutenant Sherwood, it says his remains were moved to St. Augustine. Then if you look on Find a Grave, you'll find him buried at Washington, D.C. with a picture of his tombstone up in Washington, D.C. with his name and rank. That It's obviously him, even though John and Green are common names. Uh, there's enough information on the tombstone in Washington, D.C. to know beyond a doubt that it's nobody else. <laughs> so sometimes in researching, you find things you weren't anticipating. Often it seems like we do research to try to confirm what we think we already know. Yeah, don't have your mind made up because sometimes you'll come across something that will change your mind, not necessarily in the records, but elsewhere. Um, and, and there's plenty of other officers that I found were buried at one point, moved to another. And, you know, I was looking for them all along, uh, for example, um, the Marine officer who was who was died because of the battle in the 12 mile swamp, uh, Williams, I believe his name, Captain Williams, and this is the Patriot War, War of 1812. He was wounded and I think died two two weeks later. And the records say that he was buried in the old cemetery in St. Mary's, which is in Georgia, right across the St. Mary's River from Florida. And, of course, if you look on the record, you'll find out he's buried now in Arlington. <laughs> so his remains were moved up to Arlington. Obviously, after Ar Arlington became a national cemetery, which uh, so his, his remains were moved at least 50 years after he was killed. So, Chris, is this bad record keeping or just the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing when you're sorting through all the record keeping? I think it's bad record keeping, but of course the workers were paid so much to collect the remains and move them to St. Augustine, you know, like 50, set, 50 cents a set of remains. So, you know, they want a body, they got a body. Um, Daniel Boone is buried both in Missouri and the capital of Kentucky. And you go to Kentucky, and it's a big monument, graves. After he died, they paid somebody $25 to move him and his wife's remains up to Kentucky. And I think his son, Nathaniel's, buried there, too, in the same cemetery. But then again, Missouri, they say he's still buried. So uh, they sent some, somebody's remains up to Frankfurt. It may have been Daniel Boone. It may have been somebody else. Nobody's going to know the difference. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes people might get a whole different impression uh, just from, you know, they think it's one way because of one letter, but I may have seen these other connecting pieces down the road, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. What is the benefit of going through these resources yourself and eyeballing all the material there? 
Well, it made it easy for me on my last book is that a big majority of the book is just transcription of these letters. Many of them have never seen the light of day. Some have never been printed in the newspapers. Uh, So now I'm able to transcribe them and publish them. And anybody wanting to know about uh, Major Loomis's campaign in uh, Citrus County, Salopopka Lake, uh, which was never printed in the newspaper anywhere. Uh, they have information about that, and the, maybe some, where some of the se- Seminole settlements are and villages that they saw along the way. For example, one account says, you know, they're uh, near Fort Brooke, and they go into the hammock and find a village that's big enough to hold 200 people and didn't know it was there, and here they are five years into the war. So it's very interesting parts of the war that uh, were not necessarily reprinted in other places. So what advice do you give to researchers? Just be persistent and, like you said, don't give up. And sometimes you go down rabbit holes or go down dead ends and just keep an open mind and be ready to, you know, in case you find something that will change your uh, point of view on something. And leave no stone unturned, too, because uh, I, I don't have a clear picture on everything either. And then I run into many other people who've researched, and it just makes a nice, uh, <laughs> nice compliment to what I've researched. Maybe they found something that I hadn't heard of. Chris, you used a lot of primary sources, but there are different shades of gray as far as primary sources go. Tell us about that. Primary sources are the eyewitness. So if you want as much as you can see exactly what happened, sometimes it's best to get down to the original source instead of filtered through somebody who maybe wasn't there. Maybe they'll mention something that wasn't copied and some of the details. And we can't talk to any of these people. They've all been dead for at least a hundred years. So this is about the best way we can is looking at the letters that they wrote. And sometimes you get a sense of who they were and maybe their character and the thoughts and their impressions from what they wrote down. And sometimes the newspapers don't print the whole thing. So if you go back to the letter, you might find some detail. Good example is a letter written by General Gaines, and this is the first Seminole War. He's talking writing about said, you know, we need to go down and punish these Seminoles and go into Florida and go to their villages and burn their villages and teach them a lesson. And they says, oh, this is a good idea. I think I'll tell my uh, commanding officer, General Jackson. And so a year later, General Jackson does exactly that. But at the end of the report, General Gaines is going into detail of the terrain and the land and what areas of Florida are good for growing. He's looking at American settlement while it's still Spanish territory and what's the good land for the taking. Of course, none of that enters in the congressional report (laughs) where he's describing the land and what's pineland and what's swampy there. They just print what he was saying about the Seminoles and not describing the land. So, uh, there's a big part of the letter that's left out of everywhere else, and you can only find it going back into the original letter, which is on microfilm. Chris, refresh our listeners' memory. Where are these letters located, or at least in proximity to where you are? 
Okay, these archives are in the State Library in downtown Tallahassee in the R.A. Gray Building, which unfortunately has been closed because of the pandemic since uh, March 2000. Hopefully everything will open up soon. It's like we can see a light at the end of the tunnel, and we hope it's not a train. They're doing some construction in front of the building on the street, which is going to go on for another month, so I don't see... The building may be opening up for maybe a month, but after 14 months, it's sure nice to be able to get get in the building again. And also there's online sources, too, through the library that has online sources. You might have to give them a call, call them up, see if they'll – I know the state employees have library cards where they can access these sources but if you call them up they'll be more than helpful help you locate documents and if you want a particular letter that you're looking for they're even willing to do the research during the pandemic since nobody can go in the building except those who work there um so the governor issued an order extending the state emergency order for 60 days hopefully it won't (laughs) we hope it won't go any longer than that uh So I see realistically that State Library might not open up until late the end of June. So maybe we're at the point now that we can see the building opening up soon. Chris, do you have to be affiliated with a university, such as a student or an alumni of that university or a professor, uh, in order to get into the State Library? No. uh, It's the State Archives are public repository for the citizens of the state of Florida. Anybody can really come in once the building opens again, and uh, they have a lot of people doing genealogy research. Uh, Of course, like most large libraries, they have a real good genealogy section with, you know, rows of books of cemetery birth records and also microfilm. Chris Kimball, we're out of time for this week, but we'll have you back next week to talk about some of the vignettes and stories of individuals who were part of the Seminole War that you rediscovered in the archives. Meantime, thanks for joining us for the Seminole Wars. Well, I enjoyed it. And, uh, if anybody needs any help researching, I'm, I always try to make myself available, at least send them in the right direction. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep this show going. Visit our website at www.sumofthewars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation 2021. All rights reserved. Front bumper music The Devil's Garden. Roast em, Provided by kind permission of Reedy Youngman. Back bumper music Second Seminole Win by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman. Courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.